What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's podcast is an interview with Sam Schwartzstein. Sam played center at Stanford University with Andrew Luck, and he was a founding member of XFL 2.0. He built a team of 800-plus employees to oversee everything from playing rules, on-field technology, and player-coach compensation. He now works at Amazon Prime's NFL production. He's the guy that you'll see on TV sometimes doing the next-gen stats for Thursday Night Football's weekly broadcast. He's incredibly intelligent when it comes to the future of TV broadcasting, especially for streaming. We talk about playing with Andrew Luck at Stanford, how he got recruited to join the XFL, his process for reinventing different parts of the rulebook, why the XFL ultimately failed and how much it cost, how Amazon is revolutionizing football broadcast, and much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview, so let's get right into it. All right, Sam, thanks so much for doing this, man. I got to start with Stanford. (laughs) As I mentioned in the intro, you played football at Stanford. I think you were actually the center when Andrew Luck was there. Is that correct? And two, what was that experience like? I imagine someone like that makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, I was. It was a very fun time to be at Stanford. When we got there, you know, my class, I think we had about 12 guys that played in the NFL. And when we're our first season, not a single player was drafted in the NFL. So completely different changeover from my time when we got to Stanford versus when uh, we left. You know, college roommates were Andrew Luck, David DeCastro, and Griff Whalen. All guys played in the NFL for years, except for me, right? So the joke was I'm the only non-millionaire from my class. But, you know, we're working on it. And, but but the, the the biggest thing was is that those guys left after four years. I stayed for a fifth year, was captain, and we finally won the Pac-12 and the Rose Bowl Championship. We came in wanting to just beat every team at least once. So by the time I left, you know, we accomplished all the goals that we had set out. At the time, there was no playoff, so there was no – it was just a BCS, so whatever – yeah, the computer wanted you to be ranking wise. We put you as a ranking, but it was an awesome time to be there. We knew the moment he walked on campus that he was the best player in the country. It was a very surreal feeling, kind of seeing him go through that process. But uh, we had a ton of great players while I was there. Toby Gerhart, like I said, David DeCastro, Chase Thomas, Shane Scove, tons of great guys while I was there. Were you surprised that he stepped away? From things I've heard, like you know, some of the people that have been around him were probably not as surprised as many others. But curious what your feeling was. Yeah, I think I was surprised because he loves football so much, but not surprised that he did something that that was deep in his heart. I think he cares a lot about his teammates. Not a single player I've played with cared more about the success of the team or their teammates as much. I think that's why I made it such a hard decision for him. But he was he's happy. He's happier than he's ever been. Loves being he's super dad. So I think he he made the right choice and uh, he's happy with his choice. Love that. All right, let's talk about the XFL. So from my understanding, you were one of the earliest employees on the like football operations side, we'll call it. That ended up having hundreds of employees by the time the league shut down. What were you brought in to do? And like, just talk me through like your first few steps in actually starting a football league. Yeah, so again, I, I'd known Oliver Luck for, for years coming from Stanford. And then I used to go out to a ton of Andrews games in Indianapolis. And we would always talk about the same stuff, like what we loved about football and what we hated about football. And then what we would do differently. How do we officiate better? How do we manage the game? How do we keep the foot in football? Like before we even had the job. And then, you know, when Vince brought him on to bring legitimacy to the XFL, Vince wanted to reimagine the game. The same type of concepts he did in 2001, but he knew whatever he did in 2001, Vince did not work. So he thought, what if I got a guy who was the opposite, you know, over luck? And then Oliver wanted to institute a true product development standpoint. We were given 18 months to develop, not nine months like Vince had in 2001. So Oliver brought me on because I had done product management, product development in Silicon Valley. 
and said, Brett, why don't you bring a scientific approach to this process? And coming from Chegg, learning from Dan Rosenzweig and guys like Bill Campbell, I knew to do a data-driven approach and a customer-driven approach. So when I came in, I was the first employee on the football side with a guy named John Scheller on the business side that had come over from WWE. And it was about, let's take a look at what fans want and build a game for fans. That was Vince's number one thing. This is not your league, Sam. It's not Oliver's league, not my league as a fans league. And so we pulled 6,000 fans, got what they wanted, and then kind of didn't ask them exactly what they would fix because they would always you know, change, fix things that you didn't necessarily would want to do. But what were the themes on how they wanted to approach the game? And we kind of bucketed into minimize idle time speed of the game, reduce meaningless plays, uh, have a more dynamic and rhythmic game, and then don't make the player game more dangerous for players. That was a big piece of 2001 is not your mama's football, hit harder, but like this was, this was going to be a game that fans wanted to see it be healthier. And so I went through line by line every single rule in the rule book and figured out why this rule was in the rule book. Where did it come from? You know, there's six mentions of the T formation in the NFL rule book. There are 12 mentions of the word unless in the NFL rule book. So I really wanted to dissect why do we do all these things? And then we built a build, test, repeat, lean startup method model for all the rule changes we're going to do. We started out with over 100. We ended up with about 15. We tested the rules with live players on four separate occasions, over a thousand plays run with different varying levels of players to then create a, a, a really robust tested rule book that was as vetted as possible instead of most startup football leagues that just throwing things on the wall and said, this is my belief. There was no belief in terms of things. So that's why we were able to come up with our kickoff, our coach player communication technology, the low impact kickoff, probably the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah, let's let's go through the low impact kickoff because I think that was one of the things that stood out the most to me and many others when watching the XFL was that the kickoff simply just looked a lot different than you're used to with the NFL or college football or elsewhere. Talk me through kind of like how you made that decision and the impact that it eventually had. Yeah, Oliver had an impetus to keep the foot in football, right? That was like, and, and, and what we want to solve for is fans don't want dangerous plays and they want they don't want meaningless plays and that the kickoff had become one of those 63% are touchbacks, but that's a feature because it's such a dangerous play. It's 6% of plays and 18% of concussions. And so what I did is I dissected what makes, why is this play so much more dangerous? Why are there so many more concussions on this play? And it's because we start 10 yards apart, sprint 35 yards, and then create a collision. That creates the concussion aspect of it. But we do that for, because of the onside, the surprise onside kick. The reason why we line up only 10 yards apart to then sprint 35 to end up at the exact same spot when the ball is caught is because a team might surprise onside kick, so you have to line up only 10 yards away. So when I looked at it, it's like those are 1% of 1% of kicks. So we are creating this collision for such a few amount of plays. Let's just start the play from when the ball is caught and then have an election, either elect to onside kick or elect to kick it deep. But I had no idea what that would actually look like, even if I had them aligned there. And so we had to go through testing and we had to break the play a bunch of times. I remember we went to Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College and Pearl River Community College down in Gulfport, Mississippi. And my coworker, Brian Kilmey, looked at me when we first tested it. And he's like, what do you think is going to happen? I was like, I have no idea because no one had ever done that before. But what we saw is that this is much more similar to a running play. So there's fewer interactions, fewer plays where players can reach high speeds to then create those collisions. So it was a fun process that one of my favorite parts was when Oliver went to go pitch to one of the networks, I'd come up with it that day. I didn't even have enough time to create a PowerPoint. And so I gave him Splenda, Sugar Packets, and Sweet and Low to lay them out on the table to then show. <laughs> By the time he left the 
the meeting. I was able to create a PowerPoint, but he still presented in front of the network all the different sugar packets to kind of show you here's how we're going to do it. So it was it was a fun process. I think you know we went from 63% touchbacks to we had about 5% touchbacks or illegal procedures to you know over 90% return rate around the same spot. We had two touchdowns in 2020 in five games. So still a really exciting play, even though you don't have the surprise onside kick, which may be the most exciting play in football. But we're able to keep the uh, the overall concept of the game. Yeah, I mean, it happens so little though that I'm sure most fans wouldn't even notice. When it comes to the rule book of the NFL, I'm curious what your findings were in that. My guess is that there was probably just much more fluff than people realize, and maybe it's one of those things that just kind of gets added on year after year after year, and you don't even realize how big it gets until you look back on it. Was that your experience, or was it something else? Yeah, people don't realize football is the only sport that changes its rules every single year. You know, you've done a lot of great reporting on the updated rules in baseball, but that took years and years and years to do. They had tons of testing in the New England baseball leagues and the minor leagues to try and get to this point. But football changed its rules every single year. And so it's written by a ton of different people. Walter Camp, when he first started making the rules, used to change it almost every week back in the early 1900s. So this sport is kind of a Frankenstein sport of pieced together from different people, different ideologies and different eras. And so I don't know if I would call it fluff. There's a lot of intention to the rules, but their concepts and the errors change so much that there might be some counteractions. Like it was a surprise to me to see the T formation specifically mentioned so many times in the NFL rulebook when we saw one T formation play last year. It was one of the biggest plays, fourth and one, Jacksonville Jaguars converting in the playoffs against the Chargers. Why is there six mentions of it? You know, I think there's different pieces about the NFL rulebook that make a ton of sense once you put them in, but it's just, it's been changed so much over time. One of the things I'm curious about on the XFL side too is obviously there were some unique circumstances around how the league ended, right? With the pandemic and just, you know, there was a lot of expenses going into the business and it was just really hard to navigate what was happening. But if he or you guys had more of a runway, the pandemic doesn't happen, cash isn't a problem, no one gets fed up, networks are happy. Like, what happens? Are you guys confident that this works? What is best case scenario? Is it a feeder league into the NFL? Is it kind of a different level of entertainment? Like, what was that kind of like end goal for you guys? I looked at the XFL like the your summer Ford Bronco at your summer house in Nantucket or, you know, out in Long Island. That is, it is an extra thing that you have. Now, do you want it to be your everyday car? No, but this is a nice thing to have for three months out of the year. You love it. And it is something special. It was not going to... A feeder league, to me, is not the end-all, be-all because then you're relying on what the other leagues do. If in NFL Europe, the coaches for certain teams had an articulation agreement with other teams in Europe, meaning players from Kansas City Chiefs would only play for the London Monarchs. Well, you know, you're not really making their best possible sport if a team is dictating to another team, I want to see this player play. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's equality amongst the teams. That doesn't mean there's... The players are are complementing each other in unique ways just because coaches halfway across the world want to see it differently. So having it be a feeder league, isn't it? So uh, my KPIs was not the amount of players we get from the NFL or from the XFL into the NFL. That's great. That shows that you have talent. But it was about, do we have high-quality games? Do fans love our games? Probably my favorite KPI was we sold out a beer at every one of our games. That means people were having fun and they were coming to our games. We were selling out in the stadiums that we could sell out in. And we were doing the right things in those spots. If you want to have success in, in startup football, you have to know that you're a product first and that you can't be reliant on outside forces to help in that capacity. 
you have to make sure that you you are doing what you're solving your fans problem first not someone else's problem one of the things that always interested me was you know when i tweet about this stuff or i talk to other people about it a lot of people actually say that a secondary football league professional football league in the united states is never going to work and people have said that for you know decades at this point right because there's been so many different iterations of it and different people have tried it but one of the things that was always interesting to me was it sort of was working, right? Like there was like millions of viewers watching some of these games and people don't realize how many viewers that is. There's very few things on specifically television today that can get millions of people to watch on appointment viewing. And that's exactly what the XFL was doing. So to me, it's more of a matter of like, how do you create something that's sustainable and going to work for many years on end? And granted, again, you know, the pandemic was a once in a generation type deal where very, very, very difficult to predict that was going to happen. But it feels like there is interest there. It just has to be done right. Yeah, we we were doing really well. Our our FS1 game the same week or was the same time as Kobe versus Kawhi or not Kobe, sorry, LeBron versus Kawhi for the makeup game after Kobe's death, and we outrated it, even though that was such a spectacle of a game to watch. I mean, it was a week two game. I think that's like a a, a big test case for hey, people love football in this country. They just want to see a product presented uniquely, no matter what network it's on. I think. To talk about is the success of our XFL, if you would have taken the AAF and been like, that showed why people want to start leagues, and that's not it. But from our success in 2020, multiple leagues have sprouted up, sprouted up because people see, okay, if you do it the right way, you can have a huge following. How expensive was it to run a league? Because I saw the report, and I'm sure you saw it too. I think it was the first year under the rock and Danny Garcia and them, the XFL lost like $50 million or something like that. I assume this is like a super capital intensive business to get off the ground. Maybe it gets a little bit better over the next two, three years for them. But I assume that was one of like the prohibitive factors of keeping this thing going too. Yeah, it's super capital intensive. For us, what prohibited us of going is the uncertainty. Who knew how long the pandemic was going to be there? When we shut down the pandemic, was COVID was killing 4% of people, right? So like no one knew what they were going to do. And so I think that perspective gave Vince like, got to cut, cut our losses. I think th- these leagues are super expensive. Cost of players is really high. Cost of insurance is extremely high. Venues, travel, you want to do the right way. The first model I ever built before bubbles were a thing was a bubble-based model. So I was looking at, you know, how do we how do we use the business sense to cut costs? But then, you know, when you're looking at you doing it the right way, you have to then focus on overall fan experience. If you're doing everything in a bubble, the fans don't get the same treatment. So these are super costs prohibitive, but the end all be all is football is king. So that's why a lot of people cry. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is the viewership is is obviously an indication of kind of what you guys were doing and some of the innovation that was happening. But part of it also is just people love football, right? And whatever's on TV, if there's football, they're going to watch it, which is obviously a very strong kind of tailwind for you guys to take part in. Did you guys yeah, ever... Should... Go ahead. No, I think what was cool is part of my big goal was giving people a new experience of football. We had the coach to player communication over the broadcast so people, fans could hear the play calls. They could learn what does two jet squire mean? How do I watch that game? How do I break down a play call? I would do that. And that's just very similar to what I'm doing now at Prime Vision, which is giving people that hidden look at football, at the unique aspects of what makes a play take, how does it work? What's the constructed? How are analytics involved in the play construction? So I think that's what's been so fun about Prime Vision on at Amazon is taking that same kind of experience I had with the XFL to now pivot into giving even more people an exposed look of a peek behind the curtain of how football plays and the football games played. I feel like Amazon has the way to, the the ability to change how we watch football, 
Like just point blank. I really do. I've seen some of the stuff that's coming out and maybe you can explain to people who haven't around kind of like the ability to predict blitzes, the analytics that are on screen during plays, right? Different things that are going on that it just feels like there's really no one else in the broadcasting space right now that either has the ability or even the appetite to do a lot of this stuff. And Amazon and Prime and you and everyone else on the team, it feels is taking like a much more futuristic approach to this, which maybe fans don't even know if they want it yet, but I think ultimately they will. And you almost have to like kind of go and prove to them that this is valuable and this is something that they should care about. And then when it's not there, I think they're really going to be like, what the fuck, <laughs> right? Like we want this stuff. So talk me through a little bit about kind of like what you guys are doing for people who haven't seen it yet. And then maybe the impact that you think it will have on the broadcast. Yeah. So when Amazon got the rights to Thursday Night Football, it was going to be the first ever streaming only NFL broadcast. And it was really cool. But what people think about with streaming is what can we do more with it? It wasn't just the Bear Man put on a great broadcast, which we do. We have a best in class level broadcast. We were nominated for best program at the sports Emmys this past year. So we, we proved that. But how do we super serve our fans? How do we provide a new perspective to the customers that come to our games? And that was our alternate streams. I mean, they'd done alternate streams before. There was different audio you could put on. So every week we'll have three alternates or, or three total streams with a fourth one on some some weeks. So you will get the main broadcast. You'll get uh, TNF and Espanol, the Spanish broadcast. And you'll get Prime Vision, which is the one I mainly work on, which is providing an analytics and in-depth football view to the game that you can't get anywhere else. So we are using the all-22 camera angles so you can see every single player on the field for every play. We are using player ID tags. So we're using the RFID tracking chips from Zebra that we're then putting on the player ID so you know which every, where every eligible receiver is on the field. We're then using next-gen stats to give you deeper insights into what the players do when there are certain spots. What should you expect from a performance standpoint using analytics? Because for the common fan, you know, everyone wants to see how many passing yards a guy has. But for myself, you want to see what's their EPA per dropback, which is measuring how much are you helping your team's chances of scoring on each play? Because it's not just about getting as many yards as you want. It's about helping your team's chances of scoring. And so we're going to help show and expose those ways to fans about not just how the game is being looked at differently from nerds like myself, but teams, because teams are investing a ton in analytics into ways to now view the game in a different way. And teams talk to me all the time. Hey, we want this feature for our game, for our film review. We want these features because we're helping expose the layman fan to what's already taking place in the highest levels at NFL teams. One of the things you mentioned there were the RFID chips from Zebra. For those that don't know, they're the chips that are in every single football. They're in the shoulder pads of players, and they basically just track movement you know, around the field. Are you able to get that data that quickly? Like you guys are able to get that in real time onto the screen? Yeah, so we're tapped into one of the streams, data streams that's able to give us that in real time. And so that's how a large part of what one of the features that we'll release at some point during the year called Defensive Alert, which is a machine learning metric to identify which players are most likely to blitz. We're able to see every player's position and their relation to each other, relation to the team, taken down in distance, all that in real time, and then have machine learning algorithm predict the blitzes. And they predict blitzes better than NFL teams can do it themselves. And so it's a really, it's been a really cool experience to take this high level technology at the biggest scale and compute it in real time. Working with Amazon, we have teams that that like we we're not like a typical broadcast. We have computer vision, machine learning teams, and all this is done using the RFID chips. We're not using computer vision, but the team's called the CVML team. But our our machine learning team is able to do all these things that I never thought were possible. You know, when I'm at the XFL, it's a minor league. I pretty much have to do everything myself. 
and trying to be as practical as possible. But with the team we have now, the sky's the limit at Amazon because of what the level of scientific expertise we have. What's one thing that's out there? So I want to preface this with, I'm sure you've heard the saying before, many people talk about it, like the technology from a military standpoint is usually like 20 years ahead of whatever the average person thinks it might be, right? So like you or I or a normal person walking around, they think whatever the military can do, they're usually 20 years ahead of that. What's one thing that you're thinking about today, whether it's rules or whether it's broadcasting or something like that, that could get implemented, you know, a decade from now or something like that, or even might be too far out, but it's something that you're like obsessed with and you think is awesome and people are going to love. Yeah. Without giving too much away, I think we're really good at measuring what exists, not what doesn't exist. And I think what AI does so well is able to create new things out of, based on the, the learning that has beforehand. And so I would love to be able to come up with new concepts, come up with new plays, come up with new features that we can't even think of, but we just have such a robust data set. As in like you guys will be able to predict the play before it happens or something more than that? I wouldn't even, I wouldn't go down predict the play, but why, why start there? Why not know what the best play is? So I'll give you an example. Stanford, we had, uh, this is how a play call would work. We'd have three separate play calls in it. It'd be green, right, 96 power kill, new play, 95 week, alert, new play, hound two, double go. And so that is picking out, we have three different plays based on three different defenses we expect to see. Why is that limited to just those three plays? Well, even if you have a guy like Andrew Luck, he doesn't want to take the entire playbook with him up to the line of scrimmage for every single play. We want to know we have a certain beater against another thing. We want to know, hey, this play can be that. Next time we'll have a new play that will be in that third slot. That's the, our, our, our play there. But if we can know what the best play is, which play would be the most effective had we run it in this scenario, that's true understanding and true learning that'll get us better at viewing the game. We know that against an overfront running into the three technique, the down lineman, you run one run power there. It's not as good to the shade. So there's different things that we know. Well, what if we could use machine learning to help us get better at understanding what would the best possible plays be? You can see what are the best Paul plays for certain players on the field as well, because that's such a huge aspect of it. So it's about learning about what's not being done, what's not being done right now, and going that next step. Can you talk to people and tell them why we don't use the RFID chip to measure the first down marker? Because so, so you know, if you look at every other sport, right, we've seen tennis, it's everywhere. The U.S. Open, actually, they just fired 250 lines judges because they're now using the Hawkeye tech for for literal matches, right, in real time. Soccer obviously introduced the new Adidas balls to the World Cup, and they're super tech heavy. They literally have to be charged before you go out there. And people look at football, and they're like, this league makes almost $20 billion a year. Why can't they do this? But there's obviously some nuance behind not only why they can or why they haven't. And I'd love to hear from your kind of angle why that is. Yeah. So this was one of the things I try to tackle at the XFL. It's when you ask people, what would they change about football? It's why don't we use, uh, get rid of chains? I've been publicly the biggest pro chains person in the world because one thing that will never change about a 10 yard chain is that it's 10 yards. And I understand why the Luddite view, that might sound like a Luddite view, but it is a constant, even though we saw them get tangled up. So the two things you referenced, the US Open and the and soccer are used optical tracking. And to, for Hawkeye technology, whatever optical tracking technology you mean, you need the ball to be 75% visible by light. Also, what makes tennis great is it's that using that TV yellow or TV green color on the green court. Very easy to see, very easy to distinguish. The same with the soccer ball. 
very easy to distinguish where it is on the field. Football is almost always tucked, especially because of possession. Possession is a concept that has rules around it. Whether a ball's in or out in tennis, the ball is stationary. We don't need it to be touching a racket to be out to have that. But possession, it's not just a player touching the ball. It's also him having the abstract concept of possessing the ball, which we all know with the Des Bryant catch, what is a catch, and the Calvin Johnson trying to figure out the best way to do possession, abstract concepts. So you won't be able to do the same technology that you can in the U.S. Open or soccer because it's not computer vision or optical tracking. You RFID chips do have a special space in the ball. We're getting better at using the RFID chip in the ball, but it's still not better than 10-yard chains. And the videos, you know, for Amazon Prime or for, for Prime, we have over 30 videos or up to 30 plus videos, video cameras for every single game. So it not only has to be better than 10-yard chain, the, the tracking technology, it has to be better than every other TV angle we have. And then you have to have a conceptualized version of what possession is. Because we could do it right now, put the ball down on the on a spot in the field and not use a chain. And just You could even fly a drone over it if you wanted, or Skycam directly over it to get the view. But the 10-yard chain is still better than that. And because we really care about that moment of possession when a player is down. So I think even though they have the chip in the ball, it's still not better right now to do it. Now, again, thinking forward in future, like you asked, that is one of the pieces that we could work on in the future to have have it. But the long story, this is one of the things I got off of it at the XFL. It happens maybe, maybe 0.75 times a game. So you're going to do all this technology aside for something that rarely happens. I know it's one of the most impactful plays. But then you take a step back and go, do we really want to use all this to solve for that moment? I think there's a lot of steps that we can solve on the way to create a, a 3D model of the field and a lot of unique things that we can do. But I think solving for just the down and distance or just touchdowns, it wouldn't be as important as some of the other unique things that you could do. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the USFL tried this, right? They made the ball a little bit bigger and they put chips in multiple points or something like that, where it basically felt different and it changed like the the structure of the football. And players all of a sudden that had played with one football their entire life were like, what the hell is this thing? We don't want to play with this. And then you're impacting the game, right? You're impacting the integrity of the game because people, you know, they're playing with a different equipment than they else would otherwise would. Yeah. So I designed our football with Chris Calandra, a big game. So there's tons of different footballs behind me. You can't see them right now. But part of the problem with the first football in the XFL was it was black and it had paint on it. And so Vince loved the way it looked. It was cool. It was the first football I ever bought, but it could have, it didn't work. They had equipment managers in showers sanding the ball before every game because they could not get it to work from a standpoint. So we did unique things, got a provisional patent on one of the features on the football because it had our logo embossed into the leather. But we had to, we tested it over 10 different times with thousands of players to make sure we weren't taking the integrity of the game away. I think it's a very admirable thing to do to be able to try and measure the, fo- the ball without change, to be able to take what we use on, or what fans know with Google tracking and take that into the game. But, you know, it, it's it's just... Chains are still going to be 10 yards. Whether you need an extra set or not, <laughs> they're still going to be 10 yards. I think those goal line plays, super interesting, but we got to make, if, if we don't have good enough cameras, enough cameras to get it, then who knows if the tracker is ever going to get there. Yeah, I love that. My uh, we, my wife has an air tag on our dog, right? Or like we put it in a suitcase when we travel somewhere. And it's like great to see if they're like in a general vicinity of something, <laughs> but it's, it's not quite very detailed as one might expect, but we'll get there one day, I believe. All right. One of the other things I want to talk about is Things that you like 
learned or the common person wouldn't know when it comes to the broadcast. What I mean by that is obviously you got a lot of experience now with the XFL and what you're doing at Prime. What's something that goes into a broadcast that many people don't expect, right? And the, the reason I thought of this was you said 30 cameras earlier. I think a lot of people know that there's a lot of cameras, but 30 sounds like even more than I thought. So is there anything else along those lines that you look back on and you're like, damn, that was pretty interesting to learn early on? Yeah, I had a great conversation. The, you know, it's, it's at least 30 cameras. So we'll, we'll have even more than that on most of our games. I think one of the things that I felt super interesting is I'd watch football from such a unique standpoint, both from preparing for a game and then creating a new rule, rule set and then grading the game to see if we're meeting our expectations from a KPI's perspective. And I come in and the team is watching the all 22 camera angle and cameramen are so similar to defensive coordinators and defensive players because they have rules based on if there's motion, do we switch which cameras operating in what capacity you're accessing this part of the field. It's like they're playing cover two zone the entire time about which player, which people are doing what, and everyone has such unique roles, whether they're in the truck operating a camera, they're going through the different processes of treating the game as if they're a player. And I did not know that. And I think as you're learning, it's very similar. One of the things I love about football is it most resembled work. When I played offensive line, I knew what safeties did from my perspective. They told me what blitzes were coming, what kind of coverage would be. But I didn't know actually how to play safety. But I had to trust my team that they'd do it. The same thing goes for a workforce. At a sales team, they might not know what the engineers are doing exactly, but they know they need to provide them the products that they're going to be able to then sell. Same thing goes for how these guys approach the game. They're watching it as if they are football players and coaches. They're coming up with a game plan for every single game. They have rule sets they're going to, and they're trying to create those best moments, those big play moments, just the same way teams are. I've been fascinated to learn how each level or team, you know, there's different, it's funny, you know, we have a mix of people from NBC, from Fox, from CBS, all have their own different languages, like coming from different coaching trees, or what they call different machines and different things. And so it's been fascinating. I think what we are fortunate at, at Prime is we have a ton of amazing people who are willing to push the envelope that, you know, there's no ego across the board on our team. And it's about just making what's the best product for our customers. Do you follow behind the broadcast on Instagram or Twitter or anywhere? I don't. You, you, you should, because it's exactly what you were just talking about. And it's like real life examples. The first time I ever saw it, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. It was like showing you like in winning time, right? The HBO series or whatever it is, the guy on roller skates filming the basketball game or a guy in a production truck doing a baseball game and switching cameras. It's like a bunch of stuff like that. Again, it's like one of those nerd out kind of deal things, but it's super interesting and, and pretty much exactly what you were just explaining. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think what's so cool is like, there's so many things that people are trying and they're working on making like, how do we make the best broadcast possible and it might be like the first time we do it like bubble gum and dental floss tied together but it'll get better the next time but people are willing to try new things and push the envelope so they can get those awesome shots that you're, that's where you're waiting for one of my favorite ones was we had a great replay of after Andy Dalton had thrown a pick six we have him in the foreground and then behind him is a guy doing a front flip into the end zone for a touchdown. That was the perfect meme. That one was amazing. How do we get that shot? Well, you know, there's so many different things that had needed to take place from the cameraman having that angle to stay with Andy Dalton to then the replay producer to be able to then sell that, hey, I have this angle to then ultimately get it on because, you know, that's the thing. We have so many different cameras, but it still has to go through one lens to fans receive, right? And so that's 
that's to me, you know, so part of the beauty of this is when we get those moments to be proud of the kind of product that we're putting in front of customers. Love that. All right. Last question. If I had to ask you like at Amazon, what do you guys think the future of sports viewership is? Right. Because we look at everything that's happening cable. Obviously, that's going one way. What you guys are doing is kind of something entirely different to some degree, but very similar. Also, you're working on what we'll call like a different aspect of the broadcast almost entirely. What do you guys when you sit down and you start to strategize and think about kind of the future and where all this stuff heads? Like, what is the consumer doing? Is it all on streaming? Is it more data driven? Is it like a completely different thing that we're not even thinking about? Like, what is your guys North Star where you think we wake up in a decade and we're doing? I can only speak to what we're doing on Prime Vision, and I think it's about how do we make that person smarter watching the game, right? People love sports, but how do we give them more of what they love in a way that they haven't thought about it before? And I think that's a big thing for us. When we polled our customers, 98% said that watching Prime Vision made them smarter football fans. And that's like, a, that's like our North Star on Prime Vision is get people to be able to understand the game better. That makes it a stickier product when people feel like they're learning something from it. A big piece of what we saw when we were tracking social media is when people would talk about Prime Vision on Sundays and they'd say they miss Prime Vision. They're missing that angle. They're missing these player tags. They're missing that. And it's because we're making them smarter football fans. I think giving them more of that, giving them a customized experience is a, a thing that we're looking at how do we do better in the future and how do we give them more of that stuff that they don't necessarily know just yet, but how do we help teach them that's going to make them a better football fan? That's great. That's great, man. Thank you. I am looking forward to watching more on Prime Vision. I know it's been a tremendous success so far, and I know you guys are doing a lot more to make it even better. So for that, I appreciate it. It does make me a smarter football fan, and I'm sure many others. If anyone wants to follow Sam on Twitter, Sam, what is your is your tag? Is it Sam Schwartzsteins? At Schwartzstein S. Schwartzstein S. Okay. So everyone go there. Sam is always chiming in on all things tech, football, sports related. So he's a good follow. Make sure to check them out. Sam, thanks so much for doing that and good luck this year. Thanks, Joe. Have a good one.